Hello and welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 225. So before we get started, this is not an ad. I repeat, not an ad. <laughs> the sirens go off. Yeah, the sirens <laughs> go off. Um, so uh, over the weekend, we had a platform update at MacFab. This is just to let everyone know that um, we've streamlined the service tiers. So we don't have prototype tier and production tier anymore um it's all based on lead time so it's a it's a spectrum now yes uh well eh, it's only based on lead time and price now so instead of like uh before it was like a prototype tier which only had limited abilities like what you could pick like you can only do two to four layer and only have a certain amount of components and that kind of stuff but now it's based on lead times instead of specifications so it's easier to understand um, so now you get four options you get still the 10 day then you get the fastest possible given any specification that you can choose and then you have a balanced like middle ground <laughs> the just get it to me option yeah that's the best price that is the <laughs> just get it to me for the cheapest right um, and then we did expand 10 day so 10 day now allows through hole components, whereas before is only surface mount. And I think we go to six layer PCBs now for 10 day. So that's cool. Just out of curiosity, because I've been gone so long, I don't know how you do it anymore. For, are, are you still doing a lot of through hole by hand or are you doing a lot of machine work on that now? We have a uh, we we fought, we did get a new selective solder, Steven. Ah, so. So are you using that mainly? Yeah, mainly. Yeah, cool. Now for production, we try to wave it and that kind of stuff. But will you have a wave machine? Yeah, we had a a new selective solder. Things actually, I gotta take some pictures of it. It's like five times the size of that the old one we had. Well, wait, is it a selective solder or is it a wave? It's a selective solder. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, it's just it can it can handle like a twenty four by twenty four panel now. Oh, geez, it's monster. Yeah. It's a, it's a monster machine. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. But it's the same uh, same company. So it's actually when you open it up and you're like, oh, yeah, I recognize that gantry. <laughs> it's almost the same style. Yeah, because you rebuilt that gantry more than once. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was when we bought that selective saw. This is an old uh, Rhythm RPS uh, that we had at, at MacFab. And we bought it at the end of its usable life and then pressed it into service for another four and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> that thing that thing was either like really reliable or a giant pain in the ass. I yeah, it, it, I think it came down to the operator. Yeah. Because like when I was running the machine, I could just push product through that machine. Like you just had to sit there and, and kind of babysit it. You had to, it, it took some finesse. It was not yeah. just press go and walk away. Yeah, you couldn't you had to watch the machine, make sure it was running correctly. Um it wasn't like a pick and place or reflow reflow when you just throw a board in it and it pops out the other end. Same thing with a pick and place, but um, this no, you kind of had to watch it and make sure it was behaving correctly. Because the moment it doesn't behave correctly, well, hopefully you're not on smoke break and you come back and you have half your pot all over the floor, <laughs> your solder pot all over the floor. Yeah, yeah. I kind of miss that old machine, but the new machine is like super reliable and like nice. So what what happened to the old machine? You just dump it, get rid of it? No, um the we bought a basically the better upgraded version of it from Rhythm. Yeah. I, th I think that's the company's name. Um so they actually bought it from us, bought it back. 
Oh, they 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 just restore it and resell it. I, I don't know what they're going to do with it, but they basically gave us a huge credit on upgrading to their new thing. So that was pretty cool. All right, ba- ba- back to the uh, not ad about Macrofab. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, that that's about it. Um, it's on the blog if you want more information, people, um, or you can chat to me in Slack or whatever. Um, yeah, it's been a, 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 a big effort here at Macrofab to get this release pushed out because it's kind of like a big service change deal. Um, yeah, I've been pretty excited for it. Very cool. The day of reckoning has come, hasn't it? Or the day of reckoning is right around the corner. We're talking about the brewery, right? We're talking about the brewery. You have some updates for us. Yes. This brewery that was supposed to be done two months ago. Supposed to be done like a year ago. (laughs) No, give give us the fill. Fill us in. Okay, so uh, since I got the wagon all running, I have a car again. um, So I was able to work on other projects like the brewery. The home brewery. That's like. Do you have a Do you have a name for the brewery yet? The brewery of doom or something like that. No, it doesn't have a name yet. I think once I got a brew on it, and then we'll co- have a name for it. Yeah, it'll it'll just yeah. You'll know it when it shows up. Yeah. Um. So over the weekend and last night, I think I was up to like midnight, like bending tubing because <laughs> I wanted to get all the so all the tubing is bent and installed and Woo-hoo! everything is properly put together, like tubing wise it looks legit i've been getting pictures on my phone pretty regularly yeah so all the pumps are mounted with the 3d printed mounts um that's all nice and clean the pots are installed uh with all the fittings and all the tubing is routed um it's amazing what i've gotten so good actually at like eyeballing the bending of the tubing now where when you finally bend it to the right shape because you've got two compression fittings that can't move, right? Right. And so, you, and you got to put a rigid piece of tubing in between. You're trying to hit a target in three dimensions, yeah. Yeah, but but so when you when you bend it just right, and so basically, because you, you put one end of the tubing in it, and then you kind of flex it, and then it pops in. Mm-hmm. When it pops in perfectly, that's just like, oh yes, <laughs> because then then the compression fittings just just easily screw on because yeah. there, there's no binding. I, I saw. I, I was looking at some of the pictures you sent, and and it looks like, uh, so so it looks like everything was good. There was a couple fittings where I was like, "Damn, you kind of nailed it right on." Where it looks like the the bend begins like right at the compression fitting, yeah, like the yeah. bend starts right there. Yeah. Well, so the the trick I found with this is, um, I, I actually looked at a lot of people who bend tubing for like chassis for like or in roll cages, hmm. and. What you do is when you first set up your, your tubing bender, because every single time you set it up, stuff changes, like where your dies are or where you're putting your end, end block at. But is do you basically have to sacrifice some material to test bend. And basically like, okay, if I put the tubing in here, put a mark on the tubing where like the, your die starts and then bend the tube, did the bend start where you expected it to? Oh, because it, it might walk on you a little bit. It might walk, or or the or you might have your dot your your end block, which is basically holding the the tubing against the die. You might have it a little farther away, or a little too close, or it might be over to the left a little bit. And so that mark will change how you set up your your fixture. And so basically, whenever I set it up, um, I would test that, and I'd basically bend a 
a, a 90, and then you have a test piece, basically, if I put it, the tubing in the die this way, this is how the bend is going to be. This is where the bend's going to start, basically. And then you can use that to kind of build your routes as you start at one end in, in, at the unmovable compression fitting and then bend it around things to end up at where you need to go. Right. Using that piece that you made, basically, based on your, your fixture, your, your bending dies. Um, so I got pretty good at that. It, it was really like the last like four or five were like perfect. I wish I could go back and do it again on all the other ones to make them perfect, but I'm like, they fit and I don't want to cut any more tubing anymore or <laughs> buy anymore. <laughs> Cause I basically bought the tubing twice. Remember? Right. 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 Um, I actually should post a picture is um, cause I actually got to use some of these, the, the tubing that I made square by unrolling <laughs> it incorrectly. Um, I have to use some for the, like some of the really long runs. I actually use that to test do some bends um but i should i cut cut one and seriously the profile was a square tube <laughs> <laughs> i cut it i'm like man i was really bad at unrolling that tube and the thing is at the end at the end of the day a the roll of tubing i bought was like 120 bucks okay not super expensive but not cheap either I, I bought $140 worth of straight tubing, and I ended up with two sticks left. Huh. So it would have been cheaper to just go with the straight from the get-go? Yes. <laughs> Live and let learn, you know. Yeah. Um, so what's next on it is, well, the main thing I'm waiting on next is I'm waiting on the stainless mesh ba basket, uh, mesh basket for the the mash ton because you were doing a custom thing right yeah so i have it on order um it's gonna be a couple more weeks still because of covid you know i'm not gonna be like angry at the company be like no my my mesh basket is essential <laughs> i must brew i must brew no 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 so i you know I totally understand that i'm not essential business so um that's the main thing i'm waiting on because that will influence the crane grain or crane grain the grain crane, crane. Uh, that I need to design and build the grainerator. Yeah, I need to know how tall I need to build it. Yeah. Um. Because I need to build that so then I could paint the stand. Because I want to do all the welding before I um, paint. You know, um, uh, I, I got a I got a really quick tangent. We'll get we'll yeah. get right back to it. Uh, the essential thing actually just came up for me um, just the other day. I, I was uh, for a client project I'm working on. Of course, they specified a JTAG style programming connection on their okay. board as opposed to a standard six pin. Uh, but they really liked our tag connect that we have. So they're like, well, why not get the 2050 as opposed to the 2030? The 2030 tag connect is the six pin pogo guy and the 2050 is the 10 pin. Uh, 10 pin. So I'm like, okay, great. Now I got to go buy the adapter for the ST link STM and the, the connector. So it ends up being like a hundred bucks or whatnot just to mm -hmm. get a programming cable, but it's tag connect. They're really nice. Now here's the whole thing. I'm going, I'm doing the whole checkout thing. And now if you check out from tag connect, they have like a whole thing where it's like, is this for an essential business? And I'm like, well, I'm working on a client project and like, 
yes, but uh, like the 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 wording that they have is really confusing because they say, "Is this is this order necessary for you to uh, for your operation effectively?" And then they have the word "or." And then they say, is this for medical? Is this for blah, blah, blah? Is this for, like, all these really, like, super essential stuff? So they ask, like, first of all, like, do you need this to do your job? And the answer is, well, yes, I do need this to do my job. But then after that, you say, or is it for all these really actually essential things, you know? And so I ended up going with yes because I do need it to have my job. But it's really confusing. Like, this isn't for medical. This is for a musical equipment. But it is essential for me to get to do my job for my clients. I don't know, regardless. So I don't know if, if you're going to put that on there, I guess be a little bit more clear. If you really, if you're really trying to distinguish if something needs to go out like right now. Yeah. I wonder if it's um, just how their local laws are structured on there. Cause it's all like some States is by County. It, what is deemed essential. Yeah. Especially here in Texas In Texas, it's like by almost city. What is deemed essential. Right. Um, well, I, 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 I figure, I figure, you know, you know, like I, by buying this tag connect programming cable, I'm probably not preventing someone in a hospital who really needs a tag connect cable, you know? So I figured like, it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) No one got harmed because I ordered a programming cable. Yeah. Okay. Back to your brewery. Okay. Um, so yeah, I gotta wait. I gotta get that stainless metal mesh basket i know how tall i made it but i don't know how big the hoop part the handle mm-hmm. what do you call that it's a, it's a handle but it probably has a special name for a handle that's on a bucket that's curved a, a bucket handle bucket handle yeah you know so i i really want to do that for my brewery the only thing that sucks about it like so i've been using a uh, a mesh bag not a steel mesh uh and that's nice because i have a a uh, thermo well and a probe that goes into my bucket. And so I couldn't put a stainless steel thing, uh, basket in there mm-hmm. unless it had like a weird, I don't know, like a, an extended boss in it with that. The thermal couple could fit in. Um, I don't have a good solution to that. I'm kind of, I'm going to jelly that you can just have a big, <laughs> you know, bin that you pull out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well that's cause my temperature reading is basically the wart, is there a name for the for the fluid when it you're when you're currently mashing it? When it's done, it's wart. I no, well, okay, so I think and before it's just hot water. <laughs> I think the, the the second you pour your grains into the water, it transforms to wart. Okay, so that's it's the wart. So yeah, I'm measuring the temperature of the wart just as it comes into my my um, vessel. Yeah. So I'm not measuring it in the in the grain. Yeah, um, yeah. So we'll have, to, we'll have to play with it, see how it how that works. It should be fine in theory. So so I did. Gosh, we talked about this on a podcast a long time ago. I built a contraption, uh, a, 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 like a spider contraption that basically had five thermocouples on it, and I buried that in my grain one time to get a three dimensional map, basically of what the grains look like while doing a recirculation mesh. And at first the, like the five different areas that I chose, which were different depths and different radiuses inside the pot were actually significantly different, like upwards of like 10 degrees different Celsius across the thing. But you know, after 10, 15 minutes, it, 
it equalized pretty well. It just it just depends on what what temperature are you putting into your PID, and you know the 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 wart in is going to be cooler than the wart sorry going to be hotter than the wart in the center of the mesh so yeah you know you might want to consider having like a, a differential like know that if you put 156 it'll be 154 or something yeah, in yeah. the center yeah so i was going to do a um basically when the wart comes in it's just not going to spray over the top i'm actually going to make a stainless tube that you jam down the center and it will pump into that and go outwards huh okay so that's the idea. We'll see if it works. I think uh, most of the time with the research stuff, they pour it on the top so that it flows through the whole grain. And that way it compacts the grain and the grain acts as its own filter. Yeah, yeah. The The problem with mine is because since I had this stainless um, the basket. basket, there's a there's a gap between that and the edge of the tank. It's mm. about half an inch. Yeah. Where so basically you could technically just hit the top and then go off the sides and then down. Got it. Got it. And so I want to basically say it's going to go into the middle of the wart no matter what or uh, the mat uh, grain no matter what. In, anyways, this is a huge experiment. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, it it will change. That's basically a known. Yeah. The the um, this whole brewery setup is something I've never seen someone build something like this one before, and. The whole stop idea of basically instead of making it, I'm not even trying to make like the best beer possible. I want to make it the easiest cleaning brewery as possible. <laughs> the completely different strategy of building the brewery. Oh yeah, the criteria is much different. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I gotta get um, that basket, and then I can build the grain crane. Um, but what I can do next, I'm gonna do that this night is I'm gonna mount the electrical box. And I was looking at the electrical box last night, and I'm like, oh, no. I might have put the power input on the wrong side of the box. <laughs> um, Just put the box on the other side of the thing. Well, I want everything on the front. Um, but I don't want it underneath the uh, boil pot. Mm. Having it under the hot liquor tank is completely fine, in my opinion. But having it under the hot uh, boil is not. Because the hot liquor tank is, technically, it could boil water, but it's never going to boil water. It, like, you're never going to set it to do that. Yeah, it would only need to get to 170F, like max. Yeah, max. So, yeah, I got to mount the electrical box and then finish up the wiring. Once that's all done, then... Then brew day? Yeah, brew day. And I think I'm going to brew that October, mock-toberfest, I should say, uh, beer. It's a... Fake Oktoberfest beer. I would have never guessed that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you've had that beer before. So. I've had all your beers. Yeah. That's the one we call <laughs> Fat Elvis because yeah. fake Elvis. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. So I can't wait. Um, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, but I, I was thinking about the, the grain crane. And we, you suggested in the past just build like a little gantry that goes on the ceiling of your garage. I might just end up doing that. Yeah. Because it's like, do I really want to haul this thing outside to brew? I'm like, no. I'm probably just going to like back the car out and just brew in the garage. Well, just make sure that with all the hot steam, you don't, um, you don't 
have a lot of condensation on the roof of your garage. But I, you know that doesn't matter too much in Houston. You already have condensation. Yeah, I already on have the roof a lot of condensation. Your... So it's like, yeah, just open the garage door and just turn a fan on. Bam. You want you want to get really cool? Get buy yourself an I beam and bolt that to your ceiling, and then buy one of those uh, uh, gantry uh, hooks that connect to that I beam. And I was actually thinking is. If I put it in the right spot in the garage, I could use it to lift like heavy car parts, like a head off an engine or something. Hey, there you go. Multi-use. Multi-use. Feature creep. Feature. No, this is de-feature creep. This is, no, no, this is total feature creep because this is like, this is one project creeping into options for other projects. No, well, no, it's, it's reducing how much work the brewery actually takes. So it's feature creeping the tool set of the garage. Yes. I you know I I don't think we're we're typically not uh, averse to more tools so I think that's a good no. idea. Yeah, I have to think about it. It's got to be in the right spot. And the problem is I have a garage door that opens up, so it's like it can't get in the way of the garage door. And uh, I need a bigger garage. Yeah, it's just multi-story garage. Put brewery upstairs. Ah oh, yes, that would be so legit. <laughs> that's actually one thing I'm really jealous about uh, most people that like here in Houston it's um, actually in most of Texas too I guess most in the south is you don't really have basements um, because of the water table so high basically you would build a basement and it would flood all the time <laughs> a basement in Houston is three stories three stories yeah. That's like yeah it's just a three story house yeah, three-story house. Like, you just can't have a, a basement here. And so, um, like, Steven's got a really awesome setup because he's got a ba- – he's you've got a two-and-a-half-car garage pretty much, and the entire underneath of your house is a basement. Yeah, my, my basement is 976 square feet, and it is the footprint of my entire house. Yeah. Like, the only thing – Parker can see it right now. It's just, like, the stairs that go down into the basement are in the center of that. So it's a donut. And and yep. it's cool because I, I chopped the donut off so one side is, like, dirty where my CNC and my woodworking is. And then the other side is also dirty, but it's the uh, electronics side. <laughs> <laughs> it's just – it's just instead of sawdust, it's full of flux. That's right, yeah. And farts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I ever – was able to move i would move somewhere just so i can have a basement basements are the best yeah they're so legit yeah so pe- people don't realize what what they have until you don't have one <laughs> you know when we were when we were looking for houses on the street that we bought our house there was another house for the same price that was um that was available when we were searching and it's almost the exact same house, but it just flat out doesn't have a basement. And I, I told my realtor, I was like, don't even take me over there. Like, I, I don't want to see that. <laughs> I don't want to see it. <laughs> no. Cool. So hopefully next week I have more updates to the brewery. And hopefully basically by next week I have it um, disassembled, at least like maybe have the wood sealed, the countertop I have. I still can't paint it until I have the, the crane. Maybe I should just go ahead and like, weld the hinges on the, the frame. Oh, you shouldn't paint that at all. It looks awesome as it is. Don't paint it. It looks great. I'm going to paint it. I don't want it to rust. Ah, uh, so. okay. Clear coat. I'm going to paint it. 
clear coat it. All the grinding marks. Yeah. <laughs> Forever. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm 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 gonna I'm I'm putting a challenge in for you. Okay. It's a really simple one. Okay. So so uh well actually so it won't be next week's podcast because we have a guest next week. Oh yes, we have uh we actually we have Al Williams on next week. In fact, we have three guests in a row. Uh so Oof. this is this is the last Stephen and Barker episode for for almost a month basically. So so here's the thing. At the end of that, at the end of those 3 weeks, the brewery's got to be ready to brew. As, 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 assuming you get your grain basket. The thing is about is if I do the gantry setup, I think I might go that route. It will cost a little bit more, but it does allow me to use it for other things like lifting cylinder heads and and other really heavy things tools like being able to lift like like the drill press around would be awesome because right now i kind of just like walk it around if i need to move it man that's what we did in our shop we had the three ton gantry and like if we needed to move the table saw was just you know strap it up and go yep uh but that was a that was a a three-dimensional this would only be two-dimensional yes i could slide it back and forth and then up and down i can't go or could I? You could. <laughs> that, that sounds way overkill now. Get three I-beams, and now, yeah, now you could do three-dimensional. Okay, um, okay, let, let me amend my challenge to you then. At the end, by the next time we have a You and Me podcast, you need to have a brew date set. Just the date. Yes. Yeah. I think, how about then, I've already tested it with just water. Yeah, that sounds good. I mean, because you could do that, like, in a yeah, few without days, a basket, right? Yeah, yeah. I can I can do that without a basket. Basically, fill it up with water, run all the pumps, make sure my idea of how my cycle is going to work. Yeah, uh, I mean, hell, you got a long weekend coming up, Memorial Day, so oh yeah, throw some water in there and heat some stuff up. Yep. All right, check. Like we'll all check back, and all of us are going to check back with you <laughs> in four weeks, <laughs> and we want some results. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Okay, speaking of results, Stephen. Yeah, how's this? How these uh the uh, thermal testing been going? Thermal testing has been going fantastic. Uh, so what Parker's talking about, we I actually kind of mentioned it last week. Uh, I've, I've been doing some thermal testing on a particular power supply that I've been messing with, and uh, I I need to cut this power supply its own paycheck because it has now worked for me for over eighty hours straight. <laughs> So it's time, it's time to just keep chugging along. Um, so I did a lot of, a lot of testing in between there, but I did some simulations on. I think last week I was talking about some balancing resistors and things like that. Uh, so I actually installed a handful of those resistors and got the dissipation in my transistor and my regulator. So in a bootstrap configuration, I kind of got those down from 750 milliwatts. I was shooting for about 250 milliwatts, but I've got closer to about 350, which I'm totally fine with. That's 350 to uh, 350 milliwatts of a TO220 package just sitting in ambient, no heat mm-hmm. sink whatsoever. So um, basically, I balanced it as best as I could. It was it was really hard to get the values right, such that everything kind of dissipated the same amount. In reality, I've got one resistor that's dissipating the bulk of things one that's doing a little bit and then the other guys are kind of sharing it everything else and sometimes with these kinds of analog circuits you don't really 
you don't get this magical Goldilocks number where everyone's just doing all the same amount of work. You just have to sit back and be like, okay, well, I'm fine with one guy doing a bit more. And <clears throat> I think that's what I'm going to uh, go with. So, you know, it, it, with all these balancing resistors, it's not like I'm talking about you know, 10K and 22K resistors and things. I'm talking about like two ohms and 1.7 ohms and stuff like, so really low value stuff that is all just like real close to each other. So I don't have a lot of options in terms of when you get low like that, your, your options of values get kind of, technically they're all the same, but they're all chorus, right? Unless you want to spend a bunch of money and get special resistors. And I don't want to do that. Uh, I'm, I'm putting like two watt resistors in there that cost like 13 cents. Right. Um, yeah, I don't, yeah. don't want to get special, like big fat custom value surface mount guys or anything like that. So I think I've got the, the design locked into how I like it. I've already cranked 80 hours of it just like juicing. Um, so I actually also purchased, um, enough components to build two more of these and all of that shows up tomorrow. So I'm going to get all three of these circuits going. And I think I mentioned last podcast, the goal is a thousand hours on these guys and then 10,000 power cycles on them also. So I'm just going to keep chugging along, but so far everything is good and I'm way happier because the global temperature of the entire board is like in my basement, it's 20 degrees Celsius and the, circuit gets to like 35 to 40 degrees celsius so okay um i'm not because before it was like 80 90 celsius you know when all the heat was focused on just the transistor and the regulator just a little bit of balancing act and i can smooth it all out so that's working out pretty well actually you know what when you're ready to brew i should have some really serious data on this stuff and actually, you know, I, I was I was doing some research last night on something. I do not want to start a new project. I do not want to. <laughs> I, I, you're laughing. I don't want to start a new project. I don't want to introduce a project. I don't want the Macrofab podcast to do a new project. I want one of our listeners to do this for us. <laughs> if anyone's looking for a project, I think this would be fantastic. Um, I I would love. One thing that would be really nice about this project is a data logger, some kind of really nice but like simple data logger. Because what I've been doing with this project is I'm just basically cooking this power supply, letting it just sit there and chug at max load for uh, however many hours and occasionally testing it. And a lot of my tests have been, you know, sometimes I actually measure ripple, sometimes I actually measure voltage, but most of the time it's just binary. Is it like, is it good? Is it not? But I would love to have a data logger that could run side by side with it where I'm just, you know, it it wakes up, it takes ripple readings, it takes some output voltage readings, and then shuts down every, I don't know, minute, every 10 minutes. It doesn't even need to be that great. So I started doing a bunch of research on, on some decent data loggers, and in the simple and cheap range, they just kind of don't exist. It would be awesome to have like a really simple USB guy that could just, I could just say like, hey, give me these readings for the next, you know, 40 days or whatnot. Because I would love to track, is my ripple getting worse across uh, a thousand hours? You know, are my caps starting to, are are my caps actually meeting their specs on the, uh, the data sheet and things like that? 
I don't know. I think it would be really, or or maybe even output noise. It would be cool to see like, oh, is the regulator getting noisier across a thousand hours of life? Right now, I can't even measure the noise. It's pretty damn good. I mean, I only have about 200 millivolts of ripple going into it, and the output ripple is lower than what my scope is. It's buried in noise. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, you know, I I think even a simple like 10 or 12 bit four channel data logger that has just enough memory to you know suck in all that stuff but also give me kind of not kind of also give me like decent ac readings such that i could actually read ripple would be kind of nice on that so and and the whole point of saying this is like in my research last night just some quick google searches i didn't find anything that was like reasonable and i don't know reasonable is is kind of loosely said there because you can get plenty of multimeters that do pseudo uh, data logging. In fact, there's a there's a nice fluke model that uh, I used at a previous job that I really like, and it has pretty decent memory depth. But for the most uh, for most of the data logging I did with it, it was I don't know. It had enough memory to do twenty thirty hours of logging at a reasonable sample rate. I'm talking about something that I could leave on for a month and and gather data. I wonder if you could um, if you had a lower cost like regal scope or whatever that has usb connectivity oh if you could just ping it and ask for measurements that'd be cool yeah or even a desktop multimeter but but at that point you know you're talking about one channel i would love to read four or five and i understand Mm -hmm. that i'm asking for a lot here but uh i I was surprised because i'd never really had a need for this style of data logging in my hobby you know my basement electronics and now i kind of have like a really good need for it and it just doesn't exist. And if you want a data logger that uh, can do what I want, you're, you got to shell out some real money, and I don't want to do that because this is the only thing I'd use it for right now. On top of that, a lot of data loggers aren't, you know, ones that can do what I'm asking for. They only have like a 10-volt input uh, maximum. I would love one with a 30-volt, such that I could use it with 24-volt um, circuits. And that, you know, so that kind of kills it too. And And I saw that, you know, Velman had, or is, I don't know, is that how you pronounce it? Velman or Velman or whatever. The, the guys who make like electronic kits, you know, you, you've seen them before. If you go to the electronic stores and in, in like the retail stores or they sell them at like fries and stuff. If you want to build like a buzzer or a, a, you know, Christmas tree LED light kit, you know, like those kinds mm-hmm. of things. They actually have a data logger as a kit. You can build it, and it has, like, a whole software package and stuff. But uh, it just didn't really seem to do exactly what I wanted it to, and I don't think it had the right voltage range. So I don't want to have to, like, build extra circuits to have a data logger connect to my circuits. I just want to turn it on and go for it. So all that being said, if one of our listeners wants to make a really cool project that would be great for engineers, make a data logger that does what I want it to. I, to be honest, I think it would be kind of um, useful. Even it doesn't even have to have like super crazy specs because I don't. I'm I'm not looking for like extreme accuracy. I'm looking more for relative accuracy. I want to see something change. I don't really care if, like, I see that something is twenty four point oh 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 volts. You know. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Cool. You got something else, or oh no, the brewery was was. Was everything no, but we can it. talk about. Um, so Al, we were we touched on this earlier. Is uh, Al Williams is going to be back on the podcast next week? He's our guest. Um, he's from Hackaday, and 
lots a lot of magazine publications so um if anyone has any questions that they want to ask al williams let us know in slack um should be a lot of fun quick it was hint great when al's on the I, we're, podcast. we're talking about simulation right i think so i think that's the main topic i think al is willing to talk about anything that we ask him but i think simulation is going to be the main topic Al wrote us a, an email with like 50 links to all kinds of simulation stuff. I'm like, oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> it's gonna be. It's actually gonna be really great. Got to do a lot of homework for next next week. Yeah, so tune in. So yes, let us know on Slack or Twitter um, if if uh, if you have any questions for Al. And um, so Stephen, yeah. what is your other topic you want to talk about today? So I, I've been designing something at work that. Um, so I, I basically what I've been looking into is op amp clamping. So I've got a situation at work on a product that I've got where I want, uh, to give it the clamps. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Futurama. (laughs) (laughs) So I've, I've got, I've got a user input that I don't get to control what the user is able to put into this thing. For the most part, like 99% of users are going to put, uh, negative five to positive five volts into this input. But there's nothing to say that they could put anything else into this, all the way up to plus minus 12 volts. And okay, so this is a, it is, it's a, you're putting in an analog signal, basically. Well, it's just a jack. And, you're putting anything into it you want, really. Yeah, but what I'm saying is... Well, the intent is analog, yeah. The, the intent is an analog plus minus, plus minus 5 volt signal. That's right. But this kind of connector can also carry a plus minus 12. I can yes in theory in theory yeah. Uh, yeah and and it's you know that's one of those things where it's like my circuit is protected against plus minus twelve so it, it's there's no damage that's going to happen but the thing is I kind of want there's I have some very specific uh, boundaries on what I want the functions to happen to uh, of this circuit and it's nice to since I know that ninety nine percent of the time it's going to be minus to plus five i want my circuit to have all of its mojo to happen between those minus and plus five and if you go outside of those ranges i want it to do nothing or i Mm -hmm. like if you go past five you're not going to get any more of my circuit and so it's just going to clip it's just going to clip and i'm doing this in analog exactly exactly there's a difference between those by the way clipping and Mm. clamping and and so uh, so I've been researching and, and kind of working with clamping circuits. I've done some clamping in the past, but I actually tested this one out the other day, and it works out fantastic. So I've got a link to this circuit. Um, basically what it is, it's an op-amp circuit that has some uh, – where it, op-amps are configured as comparators, and they have diodes on the, op, on the outputs. And with this, with this particular circuit, you use a resistive dropper and that, that feeds into these comparators. And when the comparators sense a particular voltage, in my case, negative five and plus five, the op amps actually, uh, their comparator action flips them around and activates the diode and such that if you have any more or any less input than positive five or negative five, the op amp just sinks the current and it forces that diode to act as a perfect diode as opposed to, you know, a curvy diode. Mm-hmm. So the op amp does all the work for you. And what's nice about that is in terms of clamping, it actually uh, creates a hard knee. So 
if you you know if you kind of draw like a characteristic curve of the input versus the output it's a it's a linear line or whatever it follows tracks your input between your two values your threshold values but as soon as it reaches those values those op amps just say uh uh no and they just chop it hard which is super nice uh for exactly what i'm doing so the thing that's kind of nice about it is with my circuits, I already have a plus minus 12 volt rail, so I have my power for my op amps, but I also use plus minus five volt reference rails for a lot of the other features that go into this thing. So I already have all the voltages I need, and my reference rails are actually high precision. So like they're like 5.001, you know, they have a, mm -hmm. a variation of very low percentage. So I can just use those reference voltages on my comparators and my comparators will just chop anything hardcore. It goes out of those bounds. Right. So it's, it's it, in a way, it's kind of like digital chopping, but using analog circuitry where it just says you cannot go beyond this limit. So it's, uh, you know, I, the, this, this link that I have is a whole article about this kind of clamping circuit so i'll post that up there the circuit i did is a little bit of a variation on this and and i kind of feel like this particular link i'm sending is a little bit of an ad for a particular type of op amp because in in this article where they're talking about clamping circuits they're like oh you where are the could sirens use... at where are the sirens at <laughs> yeah they're like not an ad you not could use ad. this op amp because this op amp doesn't have input protection diodes because this circuit doesn't work for op amps that have input ESD protection diodes, because those will actually clamp it. They'll clamp, yeah. They'll clamp it at 0.5 or 0.6 or whatever around there. But the thing is, like, a really cheap op amp that I'm using also doesn't have those. <laughs> and the op amp that they're suggesting in here is like four bucks, you know? It's like a really expensive op So I'm sure that their op amp is really fantastic. Don't get me wrong, but like, a TLO72, which works fantastic for my op uh, situation, is like 20 cents. So I actually threw this on my uh, my breadboard and uh, fired it up the other day just to see like what are kind of the downfalls of this circuit. And it does have a couple of them. First of all, it's three op amps to get this thing to work. Uh, and if you want to buffer it and do some other stuff, it's probably more like four op amps. Now, in my kind of circuitry, I'm already just like peppering my boards with op amps so it, it doesn't really matter too much for me to add a couple more but say you have a circuit where you don't even have op amps on there like are you going to spend the cost to add them just to do this you know you got to weigh that in my situation it's a no-brainer for me the other thing that sucks about this is it's not particularly fast it actually doesn't clamp super well once you get past like uh 20 kilohertz or 10 to 20 kilohertz and it gets pretty bad past there but this is mainly supposed to be a clamper for really slow moving signals like for the most part my users aren't going to do anything above say 100 hertz maybe a thousand hertz so it works fine for that so you know you, you gotta weigh your options for me it's it's great it does have a small bit of overshoot if you're putting ac signals into it like right at the initial uh it'll overshoot by you know 100 millivolts or so but you know for somebody who's controlling a feature of this thing they're not going to understand that there's a small really short overshoot and that overshoot virtually disappears as frequency dis um, decreases so once again for me i don't really care uh and then once again another downside is it does not work with op amps that um have input protection diodes but 
best part is cheaper diet, cheaper offense usually don't have that. So it works out really well. So if you're ever in a need for that, I just, I like showcasing these kind of circuits when they actually work. You know, a lot of times you see these things online where it's like a really super ideal circuit and you want to try it out. And then like you realize that it actually really sucks because the world's not ideal. This is actually one of those circuits that does work. So check it out. We, um, so what is the difference between clipping and clamping signal then? Well, okay. So maybe this is a little bit of s semantics for me. But if you type in clipping or clamping into Google and you look at it, there's gobs and gobs and gobs of uh, examples out there of like how you can do clipping or clamping and the majority of them end up just being like here's a resistor and a diode and technically yes that's right it will clip or clamp uh but what they're not telling you is it's highly highly dependent upon the resistor or the diode and you can overdrive the living hell out of a resistor or a diode and you can just keep going past the clipping level like mm -hmm. diodes are great and so are zeners but they they don't they don't have this magical sharp cutoff that uh, a lot of a lot of textbooks kind of like lead them to be. In reality, in, in most cases they're really soft, and especially with zeners, if you just keep raising your input voltage into a clipping circuit, you can go well beyond that. What you know, if you put a five volt zener, it doesn't mean that five volts and that's it. You know, like you're not getting anything more than five. Well, you just keep pushing current into it and yes it will clip but you can keep raising it up there so if accuracy matters to you then a zener is not necessarily the best situation so a clamping circuit the difference between clipping and clamping is clipping you know forcefully chops off your wave but clamping is precision clamping makes sure that like once you get past that and you keep going into overdrive it just stops until something blows up you know <laughs> so Clamping is like a scalpel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're being a surgeon. Okay. Yeah. Where cl clipping is like, you know, you're clipping your bushes with the uh, head shears. You know, actually, so we have another product that I was just helping out with the other day that instead of a clamping circuit, we did use a, cl a Zener clipping circuit. And it's kind of cool because uh, we did, we have what's called a saturation circuit on the input. It's the input of a filter. And for the first five volts that you put into this thing, it uh, it's pretty linear. You get variations of that. But I have a 5.1 volt zener after that. So every volt you put in past five volts, you get diminishing returns. But you can just keep going past five volts and you get diminishing returns, but you still keep getting more. Uh, and so if you say have a... a signal that can go zero to 10 your first five is dramatic and then the next five is like taste after that like little bits of flavor after it but <laughs> but with with a clamping circuit the first five and then after that you get nothing more and that's sort of important because the circuit that i'm designing now if if the control voltage that we're talking about here if you go past five you could actually get into a zone where you get no noise whatsoever it could actually just kill the signal entirely and i don't want that to ever be the case so i'm clamping mm -hmm. it at five and i'm forcing five to be your maximum the user's maximum and uh it's also nice too because like i never like situations where a user can get off into no noise uh in fact there's a uh, one of our sales guys was telling a, a story the other day where he saw a guy he was at a shop in germany 
this guy walks in and he starts playing with with uh, some instruments that were on like a display booth and he's he's over there for like 15 minutes and he's turning knobs and he's doing all this stuff and like playing keyboards and stuff and and clipping in leads and stuff and uh and then like after 15 20 minutes the guy like puts out takes the headphones off and, and it's like cool and he leaves the store so our sales guy walked over there and he's like i wonder what that guy was doing he was all over the place and he puts the headphones on and there's no noise the guy for 15 minutes was just trying to get anything out of it and he couldn't figure it out and just left and like i don't like my designs ever giving the user an option to have like nothing like mm-hmm. accidentally so clamping circuits are a great way to you know put you put the user in a in a in a, a uh, designer defined playpen <laughs> <laughs> so check the circuit out it's you know might be useful for somebody so we have uh, I think only one RFO. So this is yours. Rules of thumb, are they obsolete? You know, um, I was actually thinking about this earlier today, and this is not like an article somewhere. Uh, I just, I've noticed this recently uh, on a particular forum that I frequent. I've noticed some questions being answered with rules of thumb that I don't want to sound like snobby or like, uh, you know, like golden engineer or anything like that. But the answers that were answered in rules of thumb were incorrect. They they weren't bad or wrong in the sense that like they wouldn't work. They were just like they're just not right. Uh, in fact, one w- uh, one of the particular ones was somebody was asking a a question of like, oh hey, I want a I want X to happen. What voltage do I need at this node? And somebody chimed in on the forum and was like, oh, at that node, the rule of thumb is make that voltage be equal to this other voltage on this other node somewhere. And technically, there's some truth to what's being said there, but it's not enough. It actually needs to be two or three times that voltage for for the effect that the user wanted to actually be there. And I was thinking about that. It kind of got sparked something in my mind where it's like, rules of thumb because the, the the that that forum post was like oh the rule of thumb is this so just do it right uh rules of thumb how often do we see those in design or see those in our engineering life and we don't question them well we know from all our capacitor talks with james lewis <laughs> they're all and, wrong Timmets, is that uh z- our whole concept of oh yeah just use a bunch of 0.1 microfarads that's a rule of thumb as using 0.1 microfarads as a bypass cap is a rule of thumb. We could probably get away with a lot less. It just, we are so ingrained in our design of put putting one near each VCC pin on a, on any kind of digital logic is a, that is what you do. Right. And, and, and actually a few weeks ago, we even had an article that was like, dad, don't do 0.1, just do like hundred microfarads on every single thing. Yeah, just do a ton. Right. Right. So like, so, and that just goes to my, my argument here where it's like our rules of thumb, like, don't get me wrong. They're good. I think rules of thumb, what they are is trying to hit a target at a hundred yards with a shotgun. You know, they're just like, you're, you're, you're getting downrange. That's all they do for you. And I think really rules of thumb where they, where they kind of start to degrade is when the internet is available, you know? <laughs> no, I'm, I know seriously though, like, okay. So with that exact, okay. 
with this one particular question that I was talking about on this forum where, where someone was like, oh, just pick XYZ voltage. Well, if you were to go look at the data sheet for what this guy was referencing, which you could do in two seconds on Google, then you could figure out the voltage that was actually needed and you would see very quickly that the voltage that the rule of thumb was asking for would not be sufficient, would not be enough. And the thing about it is the concept behind it could easily be Googled and the data sheet to find the exact values you need could also be Googled. So the, the rule of thumb is almost not necessary there. Now the rule of thumb I think is great for when you're just vomiting out a schematic, when you're like, I just need stuff out of my head and I need it into the real world and you just blah and you just stick it out there. I'm just going to do all my rules of thumb. But then I think you should kind of go back and clean all the rules of thumb up. You know, another great example is you got to validate your thumbs. <laughs> Here's another great example. Have you ever seen an op amp in an in inverting configuration that has a resistor off of the uh, not inverting terminal the, to ground? It seems really confusing at first because it just doesn't like if you look in a textbook, you're not going to see what that is or, or like they're not they're never going to show you that. Well, and, and, and that resistor comes into play when you're talking about op amps that have non-ideal um, uh, situations, i.e. all op amps, right? Uh, so your input bias current can affect things based off of the, uh, the feedback resistor and the input resistor. So you can counteract some of these uh, errors in op amps by uh, offsetting things with a resistor on the non-inverting pin. And there's a rule of thumb for what value that resistor should be. It's the parallel resistance of your feedback and your uh, input resistor, which that's an old school rule of thumb. I've heard that a thousand times and it's been true for old op amps, but it's not always true for every single op amp. So it's in fact, and there's, there's plenty of situations where if you do that, then you'll actually get worse output from your op amp. So if you follow the rule of thumb, it's just not always true. And looking at the data sheet or looking at information about whatever your circuit is needed, you could just do that on Google and figure like, oh, I don't need that rule of thumb. It just doesn't work in this situation. So that's sort of what I'm getting at. What you're getting at here is a rule of thumb could actually mask what you should be actually learning. I think so, yeah. And so when I say rule of thumb, are they obsolete? I think anytime you smell a rule of thumb, like go ahead and use it, but immediately check it. Don't just say like, it's just good enough, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's uh, going to be the end of this podcast. I think it will also. We're, we're, yeah. we're good at nailing these things for an hour, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.